This podcast is proudly produced and presented by the Zoomer Podcast Network, home of great podcasts like Marilyn Lightstone Reads, Idea City on the Air, and The Garden Show. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of Fight Back on Zoomer Radio. Heard weekdays from noon to one. Now, Fight Back with Libby Snymer on Zoomer Radio. Good afternoon and welcome. It is Thursday, time to talk about municipal politics. And there's a lot to talk about today, starting with the large property tax hike we're facing here in Toronto, 5.5%. Staff say that the owner of an average-priced home assessed at just over $695,000 will pay an additional 233 bucks, and that the total property tax bill will be $3,569. But That does not include other fee hikes that we are being hit with. Garbage, water, wastewater, and not to mention a 1.5% increase in the city building funds, which means the real increase is probably more like 7%. And among the things that this will pay for is a whopping 37% increase in Mayor John Tory's office budget which his people say is partly necessary because of the new strong mayor powers, powers that a lot of people object to. And there's a 6.7% hike in his salary and that of other city councillors. Tory says he'll donate his increase back to the city. That's very nice. And I am waiting for an answer on why food costs at Municipal long-term care homes are going up more than 30% when food inflation is a third of that. And now, it's time to tune into the town. And now I'd like to welcome David Crombie, former mayor of Toronto, Karen Stintz, CEO of Variety Village, and a former city councillor, and Lauren O'Neill, senior news editor of Blog TO. Hi, everyone. Thanks for being with us. Hi, Libby. Hi, Libby. Welcome back. Uh, thank you. Uh, let's begin with Karen, because uh, it could have been you deciding whether or not to put your hand up for all of this. Uh, what do you think? <laughs> well, you know, I, I think that these uh, higher than typical property tax hikes is something we're going to see uh, for the foreseeable future. Uh, the reason is the city had a high reliance on the land transfer tax. And even during COVID, there was quite a bit of revenue generated because the housing market was out of control. Uh, But now we've seen a reduction in in real estate, uh, both in the number of houses available for sale and the price they're being listed at, which has a direct impact on the city's budget. And the only way to make that up is, sorry, there's only a couple ways to make that up, and it's through fees and taxes and building fees and garbage fees and user fees and permit fees because the city doesn't really have a lot of levers. And it can't borrow money for its operating budget. So it's doing a lot of tinkering around the edges because one of its main revenue streams is being impacted quite significantly. And, and not to mention the developer fees that the cities cities are not getting. 100%. That was $200 million. And so, you know, it, it will have to wait and see whether or not that actually results in any affordable housing or just another fiscal hole for the city to have to fill. But it is, um, it certainly puts the city in an in untenable financial predicament. David Crombie, I mean, it, it's not just the issue of the amount, though that is a big issue, especially at this time, but it's what is the money going for? So uh, w- we have a big increase in the police budget that a lot of people are wondering about. We have this very large increase in John Tory's office budget. Uh, so what do you think? Well, let me be as clear as I can about it. Um, When you go over budgets and other people's budgets and you don't have the details, it's always easier to take a crack at it. So, for example, I have no real clear understanding of what the increased costs are in the mayor's office. He says 37 percent, and that that could well be right. I I, I don't know. I I, I hang on to one fact about uh, about John Tory. Uh, There are many times I've criticized Chris criticize him for certain policies. 
But one of the things he's, he's, he's taken a rap for is he kept taxes too low, in some people's view. And he certainly has a kind of old-fashioned sense of how, to, uh, how you should be spending money publicly. So I'm going to take him at his word on the 37% uh, and, and, under, and, 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 and say to myself, if that's what he requires to do the job, uh, whether that's from the increased powers or whatever, I don't know. But, uh, but um, his reputation, I think, on this one allows him some, some, uh, some latitude. Yeah, but even if even if that's the case, and I know you are certainly not a fan of those strong mayor powers, it's a little bit ironic. It's ironic, but on the other hand, it's a reality. So um, I'm, I'm I'm willing to take them on on the substance of the policy of, of uh, some of the policies on the on the strong mayor stuff. But but the fact of the matter is, if it's true and it costs money, you should at least be honest about the cost of it. And he's, he, and, and he's doing that. It's also worth mentioning. This is a very unusual time for for public budgets. I mean, this is rising costs and the impact of new interest rates and the pandemic and the, all of those things have really uh, really added up. And it, it come, now comes a time where they're coming together. I think the only the only kind of caution I would get uh, give is that it's it's always easier to to spend money that comes comes from capital or operating. But usually, what happens is that you're putting your 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 you're delaying maintenance. And one thing this city should not be doing is delaying maintenance. So I, I worry about about that. Well, uh, they are delaying maintenance. And uh, the exact number has just skipped my mind. But uh, I know, uh, you know, there are still a lot of potholes that haven't been fixed and, and a whole bunch of other things, the infrastructure being delayed. Uh, so I think David has hit on something that is potentially dangerous. Lauren, what do you think? Well, I mean, in addition to everything that needs to get done, there's also, I think, $1.4 billion worth of COVID measures still on the books that, that need to be paid for, uh, re- reimbursed. Um the city needs money desperately. So, I mean, whatever it takes, I guess. Um, I'm not really a homeowner, so I can't speak too much of the property tax increase. But oh. but I do think, um, you know, it's 5.5. It's it's less than inflation. Um, yeah, but with all the other stuff added in, there's like a little bit of slate of hand saying. And, and Toronto, generally, uh, you know, people in other municipalities have always, you know, pointed the finger at us saying you pay less property tax, but we have all these fees that they don't pay. So I, it's it's a little bit of a slate of hand. It definitely is. Like it's more than 5.5%. But I would argue just as a millennial who doesn't own a home mm-hmm. that I mean, so it's an extra $233 a year, I guess, for a homeowner. And then you add another maybe $29 for water, another 50 for the city building fund, 16 for garbage. Like to me, that's still like you own a house. I mean, can't you afford that? But but I, I mean, I understand why people would be annoyed, especially if their property taxes are going up and things aren't being fixed around them. Uh, okay, so uh, I've got to ask you, Lauren, as a, as a millennial, are are you now happy that you don't own a home and facing all these costs? <laughs> well, the the tricky part is is that my landlord will have to face increased costs and my rent will likely go up because of it. Um, it I, I'm sure that's consistent with a lot of, of people. I, I live in, like, not a, a condo building. It's, a, it's like, a, a loft, so... Um, two-floor house. So he has to, yeah. Sounds nice. Yeah, yeah. No, I love it. It's great, but I don't own it. Mm -hmm. Um, And I know that my, the guy who does own it will probably have to be paying more. So my rent might go up. I mean, I'm kind of happy I don't own a house, but for other reasons, mostly just because I would be so house poor and not be able to do anything at all except for pay my mortgage and maybe eat craft dinner. (laughs) Okay. Well, we don't want you doing that. Um, You know, one of the things, yes, it's a big property tax hike, but it looks like other cities in the province are are looking at the same thing, Karen. Yeah, they are because again, there's a there's so few options to raise revenue except for the property tax base, and you know ultimately it does become a question of uh, priorities and how much we can afford. I, I think the one thing that will um, be a cause for concern to the mayor and council moving forward. Uh, which is what David was mentioning, is that when you don't fix things that are visible to people, they start to get irritated by the amount that they pay. And it's not so much, it always hasn't really, from my perspective, it it is, um, you know, we pay what we pay um, to live in the city. But, you know, when you can't go to the local tennis court because they can't fix the court, 
and we can't drive on the street or use the bike lanes because they're so um, so horribly maintained, or the water fountains don't work, or you can't access a, a bathroom at a public park, or you can't even go to the public park because it's overrun with encampments. That's the kind of thing that is going to set people off. And, you know, I, I think that, yeah, there's some grumbling. that's like, geez, what am I doing here? What am I paying for? When you look around and you start to see that you're living in a healthy city, you're willing to pay for that. When you start to see signs of decline, you're less likely to pay. Well, the signs of decline have been there for a while. And by the way, I think there's something like $2.8 million to get the water fountains working in the parks a little earlier than they were this time. But um, I think that if if there was any election issue, and it's the same at the federal level, there's this sense that Toronto has stopped working. So, David, do you think that Tories' priorities address that? So there's more money for police because people are feeling that public safety has deteriorated. And, uh, but on the other hand, there's this infrastructure gap. Well, there's no question on the infrastructure gap that, that and we're all weighing in at the same point. And, and that is, it's a real problem if you delay it for very long and, and, and for, for any considerable amount of, of money as well. Um, so I, I, I really, I really worry about it. And I think, I think quite frankly, uh, people who are willing to take an increase in taxes if they know that it's going to making sure that we're not going, it's not in decline in, in our public services and that we're actually keeping abreast of what needs to be done in terms of maintenance. So I think that, that, they, that some, very often people think that they can't get away with higher taxes. If people think that it's going to things they understand and their value to it, they will support it. And so I, and I think so we're, Sometimes we're a little too timid about what we're asking for the public to pay for. The public wants to have good services, well-maintained, and, and that they're available when they need them. And, and, I, and I think if, if, that, if they weren't worried about explaining it that way, then they can probably get more money out of the taxpayer for, for maintenance and making sure that we've got the services that people are looking for. Do you think that that increase in the police budget is the right way to address, uh, you know, a decrease in public safety or certainly a feeling that that's happening? No, that is a, that's a current public debate. It's a good debate because it's a debate as to whether or not you're going to, let me call it, the, uh, pay for it at the end of the pipe, which is uh, if you, you need police in order to do that, or you should be looking at the earlier part of the pipe. And that's when you're looking at, at poverty and opportunities and all of those things, mental health, all of those issues that go to make up for uh, crime in the making, as it were. Um, but and so I'm not, again, I don't have any detail on why it's that much for the for the police, but, but I have no doubt that there probably should have been, I would have looked for more in terms of the causes of crime and violence, but, but, uh, uh, but on the other hand, um, I, I'm, I'm, I, I, if I was John Tory's shoes, I would probably be doing what he's doing now. Uh, I mean, we do have programs, Karen, on addressing the causes of violence, and we hear a huge amount of it. And, you know, when you look around at, at what's going on, it's it's hard to see that anything is working. I agree with you. And um, there's also the topic that hasn't been discussed is that from a dollar per dollar perspective, the budget has grown quite significantly in the last five years. And uh, as a percentage. And so I think that there does need to be a reckoning of, okay, where have budgets grown and how has money been invested? Because to your point, you know, we think we know the kinds of programs that are going to alleviate poverty or perhaps down drug addiction. But the reality is we don't, because if we knew, we wouldn't be facing the problems we are right now. And there has been a lot of money invested in communities. And there's been a lot of money that we thought was going to make a difference. And in fact, what we're seeing now is a situation we don't actually quite understand. Like, why are people sleeping using the subway system as a shelter system? What, why, like, all the drug policies that we've put in place are not seeming to stem the increase in, in, in drug addiction. And so I'm not suggesting we stop those things, but, but there certainly needs to be a reckoning at some point about, you know, what are we doing and is it contributing to the goals that we're setting? And which is, you know, ultimately, I don't think have been defined. Because if it is a safer city, cleaner city, working city, we don't have any of those things right now, to be candid. To be candid, you're right. 
it's a it's a big budget. I think this year it's what twelve billion dollars. Yeah, and and here I'm I'm probably going to say something that is politically incorrect, so forgive me. But uh, you know, yesterday uh, we had Gary Crawford, the budget chief, on, and one of the things, and it's a small item in the vastness of the city budget that really caught my eye, was that uh, John Tory said. The city has to pay $3 million more in food costs for the 10 long-term care homes, and that's a 30% increase. And I thought, gee whiz, uh, if food inflation is 11.4%, and that includes some transportation, and the city isn't delivering that stuff, why have they gone up more than 30%? And, I mean, I have a feeling that suppliers who deal with levels of government, you know, um, don't sharpen their pencils as much as if they've got to get an individual person who's paying with their own money. Uh, Lauren, what do you think? I mean, I think that's a good assessment of the situation when you've got large government contracts. I mean, you know that the government has the money to pay. I would hope that part of this 30% increase in, in food for long-term care care homes is going towards better quality food mm. for seniors. I mean, at hospitals and at, at long-term care homes, some of the the food is not, there have been a lot of oh, studies done on this. Don't get me started. Yeah. So, I mean, I'm hoping that maybe that's part of it. Maybe they're going to give them better food. Um, uh, you know, I don't think so. No. I think it's, it's, it's food inflation. And the, the other thing I worry, and I, this, I'm not worried about the municipal homes because they're pretty good, you know, um, and uh, hats off to them. But I'm worried that in in some of the ones that have been bad actors, and we had an AG report about, you know, uh, expired three-month-old eggs, uh, you know, fed to seniors, that this is a way where they can hide increased costs, especially if they have shareholders to worry about. But again, David, do you think that there's any of that, that, you know, a supplier can just, and it was, it was pretty funny, actually. We had Gary Crawford on, and he said, oh... I better look at that. <laughs> well, yeah, no, he, uh, first of all, good for you for asking the right question. That, that the discrepancy between the two is pretty obvious. Uh, and I'm, I'll be looking forward to hearing what the, the answer he comes back with. Uh, he put um, it out when, to when staff. Comes, we'll see how comes, long that takes. Go ahead. Yeah. Sorry. Uh, but, but, but it, it, on the question of elder care and seniors, seniors care, um, I, 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 I must admit a kind of, bias in my own thinking. I, I worry about the cost that we carry for, for, for private uh, private companies. I, I, it's, it's more get-addable uh, to understand uh, these rising costs in, in public institutions for old folks. Uh, but I worry about the private stuff. Uh, and so I hope there's going to be a little more from members of council uh, but zero in on that. That would be important. Hmm. Yeah, but it's it's the public nonprofit ones that they have control over. And as I said, you know, knock whatever I'm touching, the, their track record is really pretty good, uh, certainly right. compared to the others, right. certainly compared to the others. But again, uh, Karen, I mean, do you think that, uh, you know, it's it's easier when dealing with the city to get away with, uh, you know, price increases that that maybe include a little bit of greedflation. Oh, there's I, no question about it. And you know, I can witness it. You know, and and you know, you talked about you kind of picked on one item, but you know, I can pick on a number of small items that are taking place in my neighborhood around um, projects that are, by all intents and purposes, managed so ineffectively. It's no wonder they go over budget. And. Everywhere you look, you see, you know, construction projects halted, cones on the street, you know, pot, pot holes unfilled. And you're like, yeah, there's got to be a better way. And I, I, I do think that the city has grown from a bureaucratic perspective almost to the point where it doesn't, the, the bureaucrats actually don't understand what their role is. And there seems to be a passing of the buck back and forth. Like, and it, it, it just is this sense of paralysis in the city that the cost keeps going up. And I don't, I don't know how that gets corrected. But you know, the public's ability to pay is not infinite, and also the public's tolerance for when they believe money's not well spent is even shorter. The fuse is even shorter there. So there, I, I, you know, I, I know that David Crombie 
believes that John Tory, and I believe he wants to spend public money wisely, but his administration also doesn't really make tough choices around trade-offs. And I think that that reckoning is going to have to happen too. And here's another question of another pandemic hangover thing, Lauren. Um, is is part of this, you know, Karen saying that the bureaucrats, uh, to some extent, there's a lot of them, there's an increase in them, they may have lost their way, but how much does this work from home, which people are now fighting for, have to do with it? I mean, I think that's a problem. I mean, I'm not sure if work from home has to do with it, but I remember in June we were talking about how the city overspent $13 million on hotel shelters for um, during the pandemic and for, for people experiencing homelessness. And at that time, we were like, you know, where's the oversight here? How did that happen? And I wouldn't be surprised if the same thing happens. You're, you're talking about a 30% increase in food costs for long-term care homes, though inflation is much, much lower than that. I mean... It should there be more oversight on these kind of major spending decisions because mistakes have happened recently. So um, I, I don't know if it's because they're working from home and just not doing as effective a job as they would be if they were being watched or, or in the office. But but something's definitely hasn't been right lately. Right. And I mean, that $3 million is one thing. And Karen was saying, you know, she sees projects in her neighborhood. But if you put that across this huge city budget... I suspect you'd find a lot of that, David. Yeah, there's no doubt about and a budget so large, so many hands on it, so many fingerprints everywhere on it. There, there's going to be a lot of slip between cup and lip. There's no, no question about that. Some of it will be motivated simply by honest mistakes. Some will be motivated by people who are using the system. That That is not new uh, in, in, in Toronto, and it's not true any, in, in other places in the world. So you have to be you have to find ways in which you at least can pick up the most glaring examples of, of where money's being misspent. And in some ways, that's where the council might be helpful, should be helpful. Um, and I think that I'm not sure now what the relationships are between uh, the, those those proposing the budget, those working on it, and council members, but there should be far more involvement, I think. There should be at least a more involvement by council uh, in, 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 in the budget making. I don't understand, I might say quite frankly, why um, people don't see their value in, in, in having council participate as much as possible. But that allows also the council to be responsible and not merely just critics. Hmm. That's, uh, that's a good question. Let's take a couple of calls. Hi, Pat. Hi, Libby. Um, it, first comment, it's very easy to, to spend other people's money. That is a well-known fact. Uh, but I'm just going to comment on one, on two items. First of all, what does the price of chicken have to do with the inflation rate in the, in the city? And an item you mentioned, which is breaking up all these bills as if we're not wise enough to figure out. I mean, so we've got we have the garbage as a separate bill. We have the the taxes as a separate bill. Now we have this item of long term housing or something as a separate bill. You know, it should be all in one bill. And the the people who started this in the first place were hydro. We used to get a bill that simply said it was so many cents per kilowatt hour, and then it's all been broken up and it's all done by the marketing guys. So you can't figure out what's going on. Anyway, I can talk about lots of things because I am an accountant. Uh, my one comment, hire some auditors and auditors who are looking we've for got things. Auditors. That's the way we, to do it. We've got, there's a city auditor. Uh, Pat, thanks for that. Let's go to Jerry in Scarborough. Hi, Jerry. Jerry, are you Hello. there? Go ahead. Yeah. Uh, can you hear me? Yep, go ahead. All right. Uh, my question is, I'd like to know what the mayor plans to do with the gardener. I had somebody come in from Windsor to attend to a funeral and got lost on the highway, ended up somewhere up on the, on the Don Valley. Because when you come there, there's nothing on the highway to tell you that it ends at the Don Valley and you kind of come off at Lakeshore. And the existing highway is in such bad shape on the Lakeshore. I mean, there are pillars there that are nothing but rebar showing. And originally, they were taking down the whole thing. They took it down from uh, Carla to uh, Don Valley and just left it there. Now, they're spending money on all kinds of things. Either they should either take down that whole highway or 
repair the thing and what are they doing with the, what they took down? Okay, I mean, Jerry, let, we're running out of time. I'll let uh, people answer. They are spending a ton of money on the gardener. So much money. They are planning to spend $2 billion over the next 10 years, I believe. Um, it, it's it's a huge part of the budget. So I, I think a lot of people agree with Jerry that they should just rip the whole thing down. But, you know, they are doing repairs. It's going to take time. But, I mean, this the gardener is sucking so much money out of the city's budget. Um, I believe Premier Ford was just speaking. I saw something go by my Twitter feed about how the, the issue of road tolls, tolling the gardener is coming up again. I'm not sure where that's going, but it's a uh, constant debate. In I, just a guess. He's not going to like the idea. Yeah, no, I believe that's what I saw that he had said no to road tolls, but I didn't have to confirm that. Uh, even Kathleen Wynne said no to road tolls, yeah. but there you go. And one of the things that John Tory always says when people make very reasonable uh, objections to dare I say, bad decisions. He said, we're not relitigating that. You know, those were compromises. Um, Okay. On on that note, I think it's time to go around the table and get parting thoughts. So let's begin with Karen. Well, I certainly hope that, I mean, this budget is going to get passed. There's no question. And council is only going to, you know, impact the margins, if at all. But I, but I do hope it does lead to a bigger discussion about how, how does the city hold itself accountable what are they? What are the goals, really, that we're trying to achieve over the next three years, and how are we going to know we got there? Hmm. David, yeah, I just would. Uh, I always try and do this wherever I get a chance. Um, make sure that we're not going to be using capital money for operating for very long and very much, because a lack of maintenance it brings a cost later on that you're not going to be responsible for, but somebody else is. Hmm. Okay. Well, I don't know if anyone's listening on that one. Lauren, last word to you. Toronto's a mess right now in some ways. Um, I don't know much to say about it. My, my thoughts on the budget, the one thing I was happy to see was that councillors are getting an $8,000 raise, a 6.7% raise. And, and that's fair since in 2018, they basically doubled their workload after they cut the number of awards. So, um, yeah, that's a positive thing, I think. I know Tony, uh, Tory is donating his raise, but um, it's nice to just see hardworking city councillors getting getting paid for what they do. Okay. <laughs> there, there's something you don't hear very often. <laughs> I would like a raise also. Um, <laughs> <laughs> Joking. Yeah, okay. Uh, <laughs> who wouldn't? Uh, right? On that note, we wrap things up. Uh, thank you so much, Karen Stintz. David Crombie, and Lauren O'Neill, and we will talk again soon. Bye-bye. Thanks, everyone. Thank you. Bye-bye. Okay, we're taking a break, and when we come back, we're going to talk about a controversial provincial decision. They're appealing a judge's ruling to allow class action lawsuits uh, for long-term care to go ahead. They're appealing it. We'll talk about that. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of Fight Back on Zoomer Radio. Heard weekdays from noon to one. Fight Back with Libby Zneimer on Zoomer Radio. Welcome back. Yesterday, we learned the province is appealing the Ontario Superior Court ruling to allow a class action suit against uh, the province over COVID-19 long-term care deaths during the pandemic. The lawsuit claims that 3,836 residents, workers, volunteers, and visitors died needlessly, while 23,000 became seriously ill. Now, as you'll recall, the province already changed the law to mandate a much higher standard in order to allow legal action against nursing homes, which is why there is more than a little outrage about this. What do you think? 416-360-0740, toll-free 1-866-740-4740. And now I'm joined by Melissa Miller, a partner at Howie Sachs and Henry LLP. Hi, Melissa. Hi, Libby. How are you? I'm fine. Thanks for joining us. Thank you. And I just want to make the uh, point, you are not involved in this particular class action. No, no. I've been watching uh, uh, on the sidelines as many interested people. Right. Uh, so what's your reaction to this? Well, I'm, I'm not surprised that the province is appealing. I mean, I think, uh, 
you know, there was a recent success in the Superior Court um, on Bill 124, which was the, the legislation that limited wages for nurses during COVID, and the government's appealing that. So uh, I'm not surprised that they're appealing this. They're going to try to fight tooth and nail to protect themselves. Um, so, you know, it's expected. So it's, it's going to add some delay to, to the plaintiff's cases for sure. Hmm. Uh, it's going to add some some delay, but uh, I mean, in the context of they changed the law. Like I remember, we covered and there was a big hue and cry mm-hmm. when they changed the law to kind of up the ante on what you have to prove to yeah. even begin to have a lawsuit. I mean, so well, when- yeah, and I'm I'm dealing with that. I mean, I have individual cases. So I'm representing you know, many, many families, dozens of families in individual cases, not class actions, uh, against the homes, the owners and operators of the homes. And so I'm being faced with that same uh, increased burden or standard of care, if you will. And so that hasn't been decided in this decision regarding uh, the certification. All that the judge said is, there's a chance that this class action against the government could succeed. And he didn't he, while he made some comments about what the evidence showed so far, he didn't make any conclusions about the merits of the lawsuit. And um, the biggest part of his decision was about whether there's a, a close enough relationship between the Minister of Long-Term Care and the, the plaintiff, which is what you have to prove. And that's the legal analysis, I think, that the, the government is appealing, because uh, this judge... Um, he went over an analysis of a new uh, of the existing test to apply a new uh, a new relationship because there isn't one that has been litigated that he could point to, um, and that is the issue that's going to be appealed. So we'll be all waiting with bated breath to see what happens there. I think that's a, a little complicated for uh, <laughs> us non lawyers to follow. It seems very complicated, but it- yeah. The point, the point is, it's very difficult to sue the government in the best of times. They protect, there's a lot of uh, protection against the government, even on a good day. And, uh, this judge was, uh, just trying to give the green light on the possibility of the chance of success. And this is a novel issue, which means it's never been decided before. And so the government is going to be appealing on that basis. Mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, um, it's, it's just, interesting to me that, uh, you know, the, the right to sue, it seems pretty fundamental. And the other thing I'm wondering about are, are the long-term care homes, because my understanding was before they upped the ante, the long-term care homes kind of made a case to the government and said, you know, unless you do this, we'll never get insurance. Uh-huh. Yeah, exactly. So exactly. How, how much do you think that that plays into any of this? That's hard to say. Um, you know, it's not something that the judge who's hearing this is going to be considering, uh, whether there's, there's insurance available for these long-term care homes. I mean, it's a strict legal analysis. But that's the next issue to be decided. In fact, uh, the, the lawyers are in court as we speak, arguing part two of the certification motions on um, the cases against the homes. So I don't know what's going to happen there. I'm I'm definitely waiting to see what happens in those cases because that'll have a direct impact on mine uh, because the judge is going to be presumably making some comments about the immunity legislation and that increased standard of gross negligence, which is infuriating to say the least for anyone who's been impacted by uh, COVID in these long-term care homes. Okay. Um, anything else that you want to leave us with on this? I think we just need to to watch. I mean, I'm hopeful that, you know, the courts are going to get it right here and really do the right thing in, in, in getting justice for these families. Okay. On that note, we'll wrap it up. Melissa Miller, thank you so much for being with us. Thank you. Bye-bye. Bye. Okay. We are taking another break. And when we come back, I would like to know how much time you spend sitting in traffic. There's a new study on this and uh, we're not number one, but we are number three in North America. And uh, it's just another thing that 
people get annoyed about. Uh, so before we go to break, the numbers to call 416-360-0740, toll free 1-866-744-740. And we will be right back with that. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of Fight Back on Zoomer Radio. Heard weekdays from noon to one. Fight Back with Libby Schneimer on Zoomer Radio. Welcome back. How much time do you spend sitting in traffic? I would like to know, I mean, and how does it make you feel? That's a pretty obvious question. The numbers 416-360-0740, toll free 1-866-744-740. So, According to a study by Inrix, Toronto is ranked seventh globally and first in Canada for worse traffic with commuters losing, get this, an average of 118 hours on greater Toronto area roads and highways to congestion. That was the number for 2022. Now, London, Chicago, and Paris are worst in the world, but here in North America, we're number three behind only Chicago and Boston. So what do you think? Let me know the numbers again. 416-360-0740, toll free 1-866-744-740. And now I am joined by Shoshana Sachs, Associate Professor in the Department of Civil and Mineral Engineering at the University of Toronto. Shoshana, thanks for joining us. Thank you for having me. So, uh, any surprise to you in these findings? No, I'm not surprised. Toronto has been famous for bad congestion for a long time. Uh huh. And what are the main reasons, as far as you're concerned? Uh, too much low density development, not enough public transport and active transport. Uh huh. And what role would you say that uh, all the construction? that we are seeing plays in all of this? It's pretty minimal. We've had bad traffic for more than a decade. None of the construction going on now is causing that. It's really the same old things. Uh, Too many people are forced to travel too far with no other alternative than to drive. Uh Uh-huh. And uh, so uh, we're really behind on that. And it's hard to imagine that even if uh, the Eglinton LRT gets built, that that's going to take care of it. The Eglinton LRT won't be enough, but there are lots of other plans on the books which will make a really big difference. Uh, Such as? Uh, Bus rapid transit priority on our busiest bus routes so that more people can be carried quickly by bus. So places like Jane Street, where the buses are really, really busy, if you give the buses their own lane, they can run really fast, more people can use them. And that means fewer people who need to drive, more people can get where they go quickly with less traffic. Mm-hmm. I mean, we have that in certain uh, on certain streets. And we need much, much more of it. Infrastructure works best the more of it there is. So each added rapid transit route makes all the other ones faster and more effective. Each added bike lanes make all the other ones faster and more effective. Mm-hmm. I'm, I'm looking now, if you look at London... Uh, yes. Very big city. Uh, people in their right mind don't drive in London. So, they don't need to. The public transit, the tube goes everywhere. London has made huge investments in bicycle highways. It's a very connected city where you, you don't need to drive. Right. But it is still the worst in the world for congestion. It's, uh, you know, way worse than we are, even with all of that. How do you explain yeah. that? Well, here's the great thing about congestion. It never goes away unless you have a major economic recession or a pandemic. The recession scales to the size of your streets. London's has actually reduced dramatically the carrying capacity of their street for cars. And their congestion has stayed about the same without getting worse because cars expand the amount of space you give them. And similarly, if you give other options and contract your car space, the cars also um, contract. Right. But again, they're still really bad despite all the things they've done. Yeah. And it's always going to be bad because it's a busy, vibrant city, but you can get where you need to go other ways. And now here's something that I've noticed in the last few years, and I haven't heard much discussion of, because I remember 
Back in the day, if you wanted to be mindful about issues of pollution and congestion and all of that, and, and you live in the city, uh, and you drove, you drove a small car. And yeah. now it seems that everybody drives these monstrous, huge things in city driving. I mean, um, is that something that is on your radar? Oh yeah, the size of cars both is taking taking up too much space on the streets, too much space in parking lots, in parking spots. It's also making it much much more dangerous. You're much more likely to kill someone if you hit them with a Ford F one fifty than if you do with a Mini Cooper. Uh, so 100, percent it's something that I'm concerned about. Uh, if you have to drive, it's better to drive a smaller car. If you have to drive, it's better to drive an electric car. But from the scale of what we as a society should be doing, we should be investing in public transit in walking and in cycling. Mm-hmm. And are we not doing that? We're doing some, but you see, for instance, the provincial government putting billions of dollars into uh, new highways, which we don't need and won't help. Uh, similarly, opening up development to be more low density, more sprawl, like expanding on the green belt, which is just going to make our traffic worse. So with the right hand, you know, we're spending a few million dollars on making our active transport better. And with the other, we're spending billions of dollars on making our traffic worse. Mm-hmm. Well, it's different levels of government with different priorities. Do you see a big kind of divide between people who live in the city and people who live in the suburbs? Or is that a thing of the past? Uh, I think we talk about that a lot. And between my friends who live in the city and live in the suburbs, what most people want is a high quality of life where they can take care of their kids, know that they're safe and get them where they need to go. And they aren't particularly dedicated to one mode of traveling or another. Uh, But again, uh, do you see that, you know, uh, that people in the suburbs, uh, you know, they often accuse the city of having a war on the car uh, and, and that kind of thing? I mean, I've heard that from politicians. I don't hear it from the people I know in the suburbs. I mean, also, it's hard to know what something's like until you've tried it. And so one thing, I have a family member who grew up in the suburbs, and then she tried biking in the city, and she was like, oh, I get it now. I totally understand how biking is better. It just needs to feel safe. Okay, I'm going to give the numbers out again, people. I really would like to hear from you on how much time you spend in traffic because of congestion and what the reasons for that congestion are. The numbers to call, 416-360-0740, toll-free 1-866-740-4740. And I am talking to... Shoshana Sachs, who is an associate professor in the Department of Civil and Mineral Engineering at the U of T. And we're looking at this study uh, about traffic congestion, and the cumulative number is pretty staggering. It says that on average, last year in 2022, people in Toronto spent 118 hours sitting in traffic. And I'm wondering out there, people, have you spent anything like that? Or are you aware of how much you spent? Or do you just put it out of your mind? And what the reasons are, uh, you know, um, Shoshana just said, if you have to drive better to drive a Mini Cooper, I drive a Mini Cooper, not that I want to give them any free ads. Uh, And uh, you, you were also saying that all the construction is a small thing. And uh you know, in terms of my personal driving, it's a very big thing. Uh, when I see all that stuff happening, that is the main reason that I get uh, held up when I'm trying to get around the city. And and uh, you're also right, you know, there's this whole concept of the last mile. I would take public transit if it actually went where I was going, but it doesn't. Yeah, no, I think... What you're talking about represents what many people experience. And here's one of the interesting things about someone who researches transportation and infrastructure professionally is that everyone has really intensive lived experience. And sometimes that lived experience um, can be a good teacher about good infrastructure investment that aligns with our research and our experience over hundreds of years. But sometimes it leads people to ask their own questions. 
So if we're sitting in traffic and we look around us and say, oh, it's really yucky to be in traffic, what could we do about this problem? You know, if that, if the lane here could be wider or if that construction project hadn't happened, then I would be moving through here faster. But what the research and our experience of building transportation systems over the last hundred years has shown is that in many ways, it's the wrong question. It needs to be your second question, right? Why am I here in a car in a first in the first place? I'm only four kilometers from home. Couldn't there have been a better way to get here? Or I'm near a GO station, but there was no way to get from the GO station to where I'm coming to go. And we need to ask those questions as well. Also, I'm driving to a doctor's appointment. Why does my doctor's need to be 30-minute drive away from my home? Couldn't we have done better land use planning? And so these are questions that we need to face in the future. Ontario is growing. There are hundreds of thousands of people moving to Toronto, um, millions of people coming to the province overall. Do we want to force them to also have to drive in the future? Or do we want to make sure our land use planning and our infrastructure investments align so that people can walk where they need to go or bike or take public transit when they're farther away? Mm. And some people would say, well, I like to drive. And I'm like, okay, that's fine. If you like to drive, go for it. The last thing you want when you want to drive is someone like me who doesn't want to drive, who has to be in a car because they have no other choice. Mm -hmm. Why? Are you a bad driver? No, but I'll take up space on the roads, right? Uh-huh. We're not we're not stuck in traffic. We are traffic. Every additional driver creates more traffic. And even a decrease of 10% of people driving would make it better for everyone else who's still going to drive. Mm-hmm. And do you see the things that are uh, underway now? Do you see them leading to a 10% decrease? I think we're on the nice edge in between making some of the same mistakes that we've made for the last 50 years over again and learning from them and making better choices into the future. And, uh, you know, I'm, I'm interested to see which way it goes. I really hope that we'll have more um, thoughtful planning and investment in the next 50 years, because certainly that's what I want for my life and for my children. And I'm I'm looking at the list here, and I was wondering, where is New York City? And uh, New York City is, uh, I think, a little better than us. Uh, there, the number is 116 hours people spend, and they ha- also have, uh, they've had some trouble with it lately, but they have a very extensive public transit system. Also, the cost of driving a car in New York City is is really, I mean, if you think it's bad here, right? Yeah. Well, so a couple of things I would check is what are they defining as New York City? Because many of us think of Manhattan, but of course there's five boroughs and the public transit and bus system and bike system is different. Right? Bike share doesn't go in New York, doesn't go very far outside of Manhattan. Like it doesn't go into Queens. And so we have to be a little bit careful about how we're defining what we're measuring. But New York City has made huge investments in its public transit network, in having dedicated lanes for buses in their in their bike network. And it is making a big difference. But the thing is, if there are lots of people living in a place and lots of reasons to move around, if, it, if a place is vibrant, it's always going to have traffic. Uh, the question is, do we want to also make it possible to move around or do we just want to say, well, traffic is bad and it's just going to get worse and worse and worse? Mm-hmm. Uh, and uh, so you're saying that we're kind of uh, half and half here. Yeah, I would say that we our traffic is getting worse in part because our region is getting bigger. Um, more people live here. You know, when I grew up here in the 80s, traffic was you know, much less bad, but there was also way fewer people and downtown was full of parking lots instead of places to go. And so, yeah, traffic was better, but the place was much less desirable. Now that the city is more vibrant and there are more people living here and there's more things to do, there's more people moving around. And the capacity to do that by car is really, really limited. Cars are a really, really bad way to get around a city. Mm-hmm. And is is it just a matter, I mean, again... I know lots of people, not lots, I know people who live in both London and New York, and they just have a different mindset, right? They, they, they don't expect to be able to drive as much as we do here. So how much of the problem is really expectations of people? So that's part of the problem because those expectations reflect how they call their counselors or how they vote. 
but really the infrastructure has to come first. And infrastructure, if you have good options, then you can choose them. If you don't have an option, you can't, or you can't fault somebody for driving if there's no sidewalk, no bike lane, and the bus only comes every 15 minutes. And if you can get where you go, the vast majority of people choose the fastest, cheapest route. So our challenge is to make public transit and walking and biking the fastest, cheapest way to get around. You know, there's a great saying from the Netherlands where people bike all year round and including in the rain. You know, at 8 a.m. when you're late and it's raining, you don't choose to bike to save the environment. You choose to bike because it's the most efficient, cheapest way to get your kids to school and yourself to work. Hmm. So, I mean, you know, it's it's one thing to say we need more infrastructure, uh, but we've seen that whenever we get into it, the delays are epic, right? And that's everything on, is hugely political. That's true on really big infrastructure projects. Big infrastructure projects like the Eglinton Crosstown take billions of dollars and decade plus to build. And that will be true also of the Ontario line. And it's just the nature of big infrastructure. Digging big holes underground is hard. I used to be a geotechnical engineer. You know, I've been there with my hands literally in the dirt. But there are a lot of things that we can do that are fast and cheap and can be rolled out in a couple weekends. Um, bike lanes can be built that fast. Dedicated bus lanes can be built that fast. And we just we need the gumption to do it. Okay, on that note, we'll wrap things up. Shoshana Sachs, thanks so much for being with us. Thank you for having me. Bye-bye. Bye. Okay, well, tomorrow is Free For All Friday, and there are big stories this week that we actually haven't talked about here. One of them being, so um, have you had enough of Harry and Meghan? Are you buying the book? Have you learned enough? Or uh, is it still really interesting to you? Uh, it it had like the the biggest initial sales, I think, in history for that book, Spare. Uh, so uh, I want to talk about that. There's also, you know, way back we talked about the case of this Oak, Oakville high school teacher with the huge prosthetic breasts and the school board saying, no, we can't, we cannot do anything about that. And now uh, months and months this has been going on. People have protested and they're saying, oh, Maybe we need a dress code. So those are just two of the things that we can talk about next week. Also, all the other things we talked about this week. And right now, that's all the time we have for today. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of Fight Back on Zoomer Radio. Heard weekdays from noon to one. This podcast is proudly produced and presented by the Zoomer Podcast Network, home of great podcasts like Marilyn Lightstone Reads. Idea City on the air and The Garden Show.